Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Just just to set an agenda, we're going to cover oil and gas and cash flow statement for the U.S. government very quickly. Then we're going to cover the second half of the 20 pages, which we never get to. Last week, we got to the energy pages. But, so we're going to start with J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. And then there's a fair amount of news on the first three or four pages. So that's how we're going to split up the half hour. On the oil price supply demand, there was a good article. Those of you with access to the Wall Street Journal digital edition, there's an article by Karen Elliott House who's been covering the Mideast for the Wall Street for the Wall Street Journal editorial page for at least 30 years. And it was byline Riyadh. And basically what it was saying is that despite the October 7th and Israel's response, that <clears throat> the Saudis would still like to put in place recognition of Israel and a deal with the US. Now the problem with that is that Part of that would be, if we're looking at Exhibit C, Saudi Arabia producing 9 million barrels forecast in 24, Saudi Arabia can produce 11. And if part of the deal is to stop curtailing their oil production, that would mean a lower oil price. So despite the chaos over there and the possibility of Iran getting involved and Hezbollah getting around, there is a low oil price scenario. I, you know, if you own an oil stock that you like, I wouldn't run in the other direction or anything. But for all the people that say oil can be 110 or 120, there there is a 60 or $70 a case out there as well. On natural gas, the problem in natural gas, I know I sound like a broken record on this, is the dry gas production keeps going up. I was looking at a Platt's article this morning, and it, it's already at 102. And here on Exhibit B, Estimated 24, I have it at 102, so it's very worrisome. Now, the good news, though, is that I probably, in this forecast, have underestimated power demand. Power demand, as you can see, went from up two bees a day in 22 and another two bees a day in 23, and I have it going up only half a bee a day for the next two years. The, the next time I do that chart, I, that's probably going to that, that, that's going to go up. For the gas bulls, look to LNG. This gets to 16 Bs a day in 25. The gas bulls have a, an expression. It's called 27 by 27. And what they're meaning is 27 Bs of LNG input gas by 2027. So now it's built up pretty pretty slowly, and that's why this is fairly gentle. So you have those two factors. You have more gas for power. And it's a matter of wind and solar going in and then not being available. So you need to run the gas plants and then higher gas production and then the LNG project. Uh, Exhibit A, again, I probably sound like a broken record on this, but the government 
all the government, the Biden administration, the House, which has a new speaker, the Senate, cannot continue to increase discretionary spending. There will be bond vigilantes, whatever you want to call them, much higher tenure rates. They're just not going to be able to do it. And <clears throat> much higher rates are going to cause stresses all over the system. Um, in terms of being a successful successful with your the equity with your equity portfolio, it's not necessarily bad news to have a capital market event where the Fed has to come to the rescue because that will provide liquidity. Think about what happened when it became clear in March of 2020 that we had a significant problem with COVID. The capital market started to deteriorate, the Fed stepped in, and then the Fed added to its balance sheet five trillion between uh, March of 20 and, and, and the end of 21. I'm not saying they'll have a response like that, but they certainly might stop their quantitative tightening, which is trying to get the Fed balance sheet down a trillion a year from its height at nine to get it back down under four, some more reasonable number. And they might even start to ease up on the Fed funds rate if, if, cap, if there was a problem. Now, what are we talking about a problem? We're talking about like the fourth quarter of 08, where, you know, things just came unglued after Lehman went bankrupt and looked like AIG might go down. Or it would be like March of 2020 when, you know, all of a sudden the capital markets really took fright about COVID. It's hard to predict when one of those things happen. But when they happen, you know, you're, you're the Fed, uh, you know, is supposed to have low inflation and high employment, but really what the Fed does, even more than that, is come to the rescue of the capital markets. Next page is page 13, which is J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs. They've all reported their earnings, but what I found with these financial entities and, and also with almost every other industry group is wait for the 10 Qs. The, the, press, you know, the earnings press releases are generally incomplete, and uh, I don't have, uh, we don't have uh, 10 Qs for these companies, so I'll probably uh, get to them, not not this weekend, but maybe the following weekend. The next page, so just everything in the 20 pages is updated to June 30, or if there's some uh, fiscal, fiscal page, you know, odd fiscal year ends, like some of the stuff may be updated through July or even through August, but we don't really have third quarter numbers in yet. The next page, page 14, Caterpillar and Deer are very good manufacturing companies. And just to, I mean, here they're trading for, you know, mid-teens times free cash flow, which is a 6 or 7% yield. Um, are they good buys there? I mean, these are very good companies. They generate free cash flow. They compete on a worldwide basis. Of course, they're good companies. Is this a good entry point for them? You know, I don't know. I, I've been a Caterpillar stockholder for quite a while, up, you know, two and a half, three times. But I, I don't know. I, I, I can't tell you that I think it, it's, uh, you know, a good investment here. Genrac is a company I just don't understand. You would think, uh, you would think that there'd be more demand for uh, generators. They have a dominant market share, but they just can't seem to find their way. Transdyne is a very, very good company. It does have a lot of debt. What it does is 
it borrows money, it generates a lot of free cash flow, and then it declares special dividends. And, you know, it has been a terrific stock. Fastenal, which I do own up, you know, I don't know, two and a half or three times on, is a great company. If you, I, I know I, I use this all the time as a, to try to keep not, not only not more than about a dozen stocks, just keep looking for the Fastenals. If when it came public 30 years ago, you'd invest, you, you put, nine dollars a share into a thousand shares nine thousand dollars you have six or seven million dollars now of dividends and market cap of the fastenal stock from here you know it's awfully expensive but it keeps reinventing itself it's now on second generation of management and you know i certainly wouldn't sell what i own but i i, I don't know about like, getting in price here the next page is healthcare page we're gonna have jason cover this I mean, we're, we're apparently don't need vaccines, so Pfizer's been hurt, Moderna's been hurt, BioNTech's been hurt, Lanthius and Vertex look like very good companies. Jason, if you had to have a podium, in other words, out of the five, which are the three most interesting? The three most interesting? Yeah. So I guess third place on the podium would be, I'd have to say BioNTech. For reasons we've we've discussed before, they have a huge portfolio of cancer vaccines that they're working on. COVID kind of stuffed the piggy bank for them, if you will, and they were able to do a lot of research financed by the COVID vaccines. Um, so now that they're scaling back, you'd have to think they're they're cutting the programs that don't have as good of results through their their research program. So what's left is is going to be the more promising research, and they've got a lot of money to. So bring those to market. Second place, second place, I'd put Lanthius on the list. Again, we've we've talked about all three of these a lot, and they've recent news for them is Eli Lilly had agreed to buy Point Biosciences, and and Point developed the technology that Lanthius then licensed to develop their their new prostate cancer treatment. So not the diagnostic, but the treatment. And that phase three study is wrapping up this quarter. So you'd have to imagine that that the due diligence on Eli Lilly's part had biostatisticians looking at the interim results from that study. So kind of a vote of confidence to the positive there. And Vertex is a company we absolutely love. So the, the news there that came out yesterday is the FDA had their panel of experts assessing the results from the Exacel trial. So this is where they partnered with CRISPR Therapeutics to develop the, the gene therapy that cures sickle cell. And they actually had some of the patients come through and, and testify about their experience post-treatment, and it changes their life, right? So, so the, they are cured of sickle cell. There was no question to the efficacy of this. What came out of the ADCOM is that they're worried about off-target edits to the DNA, and then Vertex, they recommended, and Vertex had already agreed to this, but a 15-year follow-up on patients post, post-treatment. So they're, they're looking for you know, probably blood cancers that come about from, from the gene editing. So that's positive news lately, but, but the big thing is the, the non-opioid pain treatment. If that really works as the phase two study, uh, data indicates, that would be huge for Vertex and the nation. So... That's got a, a Vertex has to take the gold medal for that. I, 
Mike's next. I kind of like this podium idea. There are five <laughs> companies on, on uh, page 16. Uh, you, you're probably going to have Celsius as amongst the uh, top three, but who, how, how do you do it with uh, uh, arranging the podium? That's a tough one because Celsius is the only one there that I'm really – well, it's, it's a position in our portfolio. but So we'll put – Celsius on the top of the podium. But then if I had to pick two others that I would be interested in. Um, yeah, which you'd spend time on. Yeah, certainly Chipotle, just historically based on, you know, they've done a good job with that category of business. Um, so I think that if you're investing in the fast casual space and you're not looking at Chipotle, at least for an idea as to how somebody's done a very good job, um, then you'd be in error. So I think Chipotle is fantastic. And the other one I guess I would look at is Hilton because um, it is also a franchise business. And I guess one of these kind of like longer term things that's happening, we saw a lot of residential properties convert to hotel over, especially during the course of COVID, there was more traveling and more uh, kind of a preference to stay in a non, not in a hotel. So maybe Hilton worldwide would have some general tailwinds as we kind of pull back from this over using residential to supplement travel. So I, I don't really know though, cause I haven't gone deep on that one in particular, but I think those would be my three. No, I think, I think you make good points on help. The, um, we probably got another three or four minutes. We're not going to get, well, we might get all the way through. I'll take page 17, which is FedEx and United parcel. I've never spent it. Well, one thing about these 20 pages, I don't believe there's any company on these 20 pages that doesn't have free cash flow, with one exception, which we'll get to shortly. But so these, these the 80 companies or so on the 20 pages, they're picked because they have free cash flow. And then it's a question of can the free cash flow grow? You know, how is it priced? Is it 10 times free cash flow, 20 times free cash flow, or in some of the tech names, 30 times free cash flow. So, so the, the, there is a, a theme that, that, that you have to meet or a standard that you have to meet to be included on the 20 pages. United Parcel and FedEx compete with each other. As you can see, United Parcel has more free cash flow, about twice as much as FedEx does. It's fairly capital-intensive business equal to four times free cash flow, while United Parcel only has two times. They both, as you can see from the interim, they're, they're, they're in a bit of a decline now. Fuel prices, you know, a lot of this is, you know, flying planes and trucks and whatnot. High fuel prices, obviously, is an issue for them. Nike is one of the great franchises out there. I'm sure everyone on the phone has or will use Nike products. They do have $5 billion of free cash flow. They are 30 times free cash flow. In terms of their interim results, they're a little bit on the flat side. Costco is one of the great investments of all time. I looked at it many years ago. And they have kind of a club that you belong to, and then they have very low markups. They have $6 billion of free cash flow. It's been a great, great stock down. Is it worth 40 times free cash flow? Uh, it seems a little excessive. But it is one of the great investments over the last 10 or 20 years. So we get to uh, the next one, Freeport. I put on here just because I think copper is interesting. Freeport is a dominant copper company. 
I think copper and all commodities, Mike and I were talking this morning, are in a little bit of trouble because of the slowdown in China. Albemarle is an interesting company. They're the largest public non-Chinese company in, in the business of uh, lithium, which is needed for batteries. They produce lithium all over the triangle where you do it with salt flats is Chile and, and Argentina, a little bit of Bolivia. They've come down and the prices you know, of the product has come down three times free cash flow. You know, I mean, there's no question. I mean, maybe there's another way to make batteries, but maybe not. So this would probably be one that Mike and Jason would put on their watch list. CF Industries is ammonia. Uh, ammonia's come down a lot. You can buy this at seven times free cash flow. It's, I mean, it's very cyclical. Uh, you don't have too much debt here. These people are the biggest in the business. Uh, obviously, ammonia is very heavily agricultural. I think one of the reasons people uh, got excited about it, maybe over-enthused, is it is a way to transport hydrogen. And uh, a lot of people, especially in Europe, say hydrogen is the future to uh, to run their uh, to run their uh, trains and maybe planes and and whatnot. I personally think it's overdone, and the lower price or the lower the the low times cash flow. I mean, we don't have too many companies on those twenty pages that seven times free cash flow probably uh, reflects that. Um, Nextera is does not have free cash flow. Uh, Nextera is on here because uh, the power business, they have been considered to be both in regulated power, Florida Power and Light, and they have most more solar than anyone else and more wind than anyone else. And they're very well managed, very adept. But if you can see their, I mean, their range is 88 to 47. They're down to 54 as of this date. They're, they've got a huge amount of debt. They have a a um, kind of a sister company, MLP, which has gone down even more. And I think what's happened is that the bloom has kind of come off the rose on renewable power. And so, you know, they, having been the poster child for that business, are now, you know, now in a significant decline, not just a decline in their stock price, but also a decline in their in their cash flow. I think we leave 19 and 20 for next week because I want to turn to page one, which is Apple, Alphabet, and Tesla. Apple announces tomorrow. Alphabet has announced. Alphabet has just winding up their, their trial on antitrust grounds, and then there's lots of Tesla news. So I guess we can leave Apple for next, next uh, week. Why don't we have Mike speak to uh, what he thinks of alphabet and the possible results of the trial and how their third quarter results looked, et cetera, and then have Jason do Tesla. Yes. So alphabet, from a valuation perspective, it's sort of the cheapest of the the magnificent seven. That would tell you that there's something priced in as maybe there's a little bit more risk in the business model or something along those lines. The trial, though, I, I just can't wrap my head around why anything between the relationship of Google and Apple is illegal. And you could almost say the fact that they have to pay for access, it's like paying for leads, essentially, if that, that, that fee that they pay and revenue share, it almost tells you that they're definitely not a monopolist. So it's, 
it's a stretch of a case. The FTC is trying to set new precedent or at least awaken people to the fact that we are in a different economy than we were when the antitrust laws were formed. And uh, there's no question that you could draft some new legislation that would curb quote unquote anti-competitive behavior given what we know about the technology industry today that would probably be that beneficial. But the things you would probably go after are like app stores and locking down devices and that sort of thing, as opposed to payment between Google and Apple. Anything to add there, Jason? Yeah, I guess another angle to, to look at Alphabet is their cloud computing business. So we've seen, you know, Alphabet, Amazon, and Microsoft have all reported now. Microsoft's cloud revenue grew substantially, mostly because they, they have the open AI libraries and you can integrate with ChatGPT. AWS cloud revenue leveled off, um, so it stopped declining. They, they had such large market share, it's hard to grow at the pace they were growing, but they've stopped the decline. Um, whereas as Google's cloud um, remains in a, in a decline. So Mike and I were talking about this earlier. It, you know, it, it's not unforeseeable that the hyperscaler market ends up as a duopoly because a lot of these do end up as a duopoly. And it's looking more and more like Microsoft Azure and, and AWS. And uh, Google, Google Cloud's getting left behind. Right. I think it comes to their clarity of strategy. AWS has a clear strategy. Microsoft has a clear strategy. And Google seems to, well, they have invested very heavily in AI. Their business model sort of captivates them to not actually doing much with it. They had a strategy around, this is very technical, but containerization of applications. But there wasn't a big enough moat around that. And they didn't develop all the, the tools to surround that as the other two have. So yeah. maybe, maybe the strategy failed. Yeah. I, I think Sundar's days may be limited if they don't keep pace with the others. I, the founders will find someone else to be the chief executive, I guess, is what, you, what might happen. Tesla is in a swoon, but especially with the UAW agreements, strategically in an awfully strong position and Ford GM as part of the agreements has scaled back their ambitions in terms of making and selling EVs. I guess Tesla, it's a question of how cheap will Tesla get because it's probably something you want to own three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, unless you think that you know, EVs will flatten out and in the U.S. never be more than 10% of the automobiles produced here. But over to you, Jason, on Tesla. Yeah, we, we agree. It's, it's something you want to own. The you stock know, or the product? <laughs> I'd say the stock. Uh, we have differing opinions on the Tesla automobile styling. Um, <laughs> I'm not the one that wants to drive a Tesla. But... Uh, you know, the, the, the big three have a, have a big challenge, and they are not, 
right now it doesn't appear they're going to be successful in transitioning to the to EVs, to producing EVs. So we see Tesla's biggest competition really is maybe a BYD out of China. How long can we hold those cars out of the U.S.? You know, who knows? Probably not forever. They're they're going to Europe already, um, and having a lot of success. So. You know, you, you do want to own Tesla, and the price has come down a lot. The sheet says 260, but it's I think it's just above 200 today. Elon's strategy, you know, his stated goal is to transition the human race to a more sustainable energy energy use. So his goal, his stated goal, is to have as many people driving EVs as possible. So his interest rates have gone up. Most people finance their vehicles. He's dropped the price of the vehicle. So maybe from a payments per, you know, a dollars out payment per month, it stayed the same because he wants this car to be as accessible as possible to, you know, to Americans. So, you know, we got, you'd have to figure out what price you're willing to pay for it. But, you know, they're, they're going through some growing pains right now with the economy and the high interest rates. But long term, you know, they're going to come out the other side with a much more efficient manufacturing capacity than than Ford and GM, who might not even be making EVs at that point. And this is your EV manufacturer. Speaking of swoons, before we break, uh, NVIDIA, I guess concerns about exports into China, but also trees don't grow to the sky. Or Jason, what's your thought on NVIDIA? Yeah, we talk a lot about how... uh, how big can they grow? And I've seen some really wild estimates on, on the internet, but realistically, how many chips can they make and how much demand is there? So that, that's a question. AMD reported their results and uh, Lisa Sue estimated that they're going to, she stated that they're going to sell $2 billion worth of uh, GPU chips to the data center next year. We're still trying to wrap our heads around if, if the likelihood of that or, you know, is it was it way underestimate or, or way over? You know, NVIDIA's moat, as we've said time and time again, is, is software and not hardware. So the AMD chips are catching up on the software side, but they've only just in the last month released their kind of equivalent software platform to NVIDIA's CUDA. So at a software maturity level, NVIDIA's, you know, a decade ahead. But AMD's catching up. So something something to keep our eye on. And I'd add that some of the the scale of certain players in this game is going to drive adoption of, well, today, AMD chips, tomorrow, self-designed chips. And the example I'll give you is the largest pre-order purchaser of AMD chips, and that's Microsoft. They've Their AI strategy is basically take the chat GPT models and use those same models to undergird every AI application within the business. With that, you have the ability to develop extreme efficiencies. Also with that, you have the ability to invest in the software where maybe AMD software is behind. Um, They can invest in optimizing that software so that they can acquire cheaper chips. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. What's what's my cost of ownership on this particular chip? And after some combination of CapEx and, in this case, OpEx, as in the form of labor to actually write the code to make it more efficient. And at the scales they operate, you're, you're looking at electricity and, and air conditioning costs a lot too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, right. but, but that all dials back to like, how big is AMD's moat? It's not big 
because the next step along that path is what Microsoft's already announced, is they're going to develop their own AI chips, which really means they're developing AI chips for open AI. Right. Right. Good. Well, more to talk about next week. In the meantime, everyone be well and stay healthy. And remember, if you want to direct us in one direction or another, if you send an email to Diane, she passes them all on to us. Take care, everyone. Views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.